Welcome to The Bulb, a podcast shedding light on gendered violence. In each edition, we'll explore aspects of this violence. What is thought about it, what we know about it, or what is yet to be revealed. The Bulb is a podcast series brought to you by the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. Thank you for joining us as we share knowledge to improve the lives of women and their children. Today on The Bulb, I'm joined by Paul, who's Secretary of the SPEAK Network, and we'll find out a little bit more about what SPEAK actually stands for very soon. Paul's also a counsellor and group facilitator in a Brisbane service, and today Paul's going to share with listeners some of his perspectives on this very important topic. Paul, welcome to The Bulb. Thank you, Colleen, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to say a few words about this area of work. Well, I'm sure you're going to say more than a few words, so it's great to have you with us. Paul, one of the reasons we're exploring this theme of working with men this season is because there's been so much interest in this area, particularly in terms of research and policy developments. It feels like there's been a growth, and because you wear at least two hats that we know about, so in terms of your work with Speak and your what I'll refer to as your day job, listeners would be really keen to learn more about each of these roles. And, and later on, we'll kind of look at how these relate to the topic that we're exploring. So, Paul, please share. Okay. So, let's start with speak. Um, speak with a Q on the end. Um, we have a network of um, practitioners and not just practitioners, but all of the people involved in the intervention work specialist intervention work with men who are using domestic and family violence. Um, SPEAK stands for Services and Practitioners for the Elimination of Abuse Queensland, um, a useful acronym. Um, and I guess the key thing about it is it's the opportunity that um, we have as a, a sector, those of us who work in this area, to actually get together and talk about what we do um, Speak has roots that go back to the very beginning of funded services in Queensland. Um, and at that time, there were uh, only six funded services. And if you can imagine, that means the people doing that work had very few people they could talk to who actually understood what it was like uh, and really understood the issues because they lived them. So that's where Speak started as a uh, mutual support for practitioners. Um, we've kept that focus on supporting practitioners, but our interests are well beyond that into um, management issues, into policy issues, into uh, how we connect with the rest of the sector, so sector development issues. Um, as secretary, and it's a bit of a misnomer because it's, there's only one formal position, uh, well, until, I, should, I should say until recently there was only one formal position in SPEAK and that was secretary. So uh, I've been secretary and I guess you could say coordinator of the network um, since 2009. Uh, secretary role kind of started before that, but that's when we picked up our new name and that's when we established the secretariat. Um, we now have a steering committee, so we have other people getting on board and we're in the process of strengthening, formalising and resourcing this network so that it can actually do um, 
more of the things that we would really like to be able to do in terms of sector development, uh, in terms of even engaging with the public more around um, communicating about um, working with perpetrators of DV uh, and, and things happen publicly to be able to comment uh, in a way that says something from our perspective of uh, that, that expertise of working with people who are using violence. Mm, thank you, Paul. That sector work is vital, isn't it? Now, please tell us about your other role. Um, my day job uh, in Brisbane is is with a program that um, has been around also since those very early days. Um, changed a lot in that time. I've been with it since 2004. Um, these days, our major source of referral is from Brisbane Magistrates Court um, through intervention orders, but mainly there's a few who are referred at court and don't have an intervention order. But in Brisbane, they've been fairly strong on the intervention orders and, and that's, um, uh, that's been the bulk of our referrals. But we do get referrals from everywhere. Um, and that includes people who just go looking on the internet and, and find us or who are referred through child safety uh, or whatever. Given that there is a, a specialist service that works with mandated men who are on probation, um, we don't formally uh, see those guys anymore. We used to. Um, previously, um, we were uh, one of the major uh, providers and, and you know, probation and parole would have been one of our, our major referrers. Um, so our population... That we're, that we're working with has changed a bit over time. And that in itself is interesting because we're having men who are referred at an earlier stage in the process. For many of them, it's the first time they've been to court, certainly not all, but many. Um, and there are some differences, I think, to, uh, for example, mandated men who uh, are on probation. Um, Paul, could you expand for the listeners the nature of your program, please? So the program we work with um, is an 18-week program. It's uh, designed and put together by Ken McMaster and his colleagues. Um, we uh, see people for a couple of assessment sessions, uh, and those assessment sessions as anyone involved would be aware, is much more than just assessment. It's about engagement. It's about um, establishing some inner motivation if a guy doesn't already have it to actually make some changes in his life and change the way that he approaches his relationships and, and the difficulties that might come up in relationship. Um we also have the opportunity, apart from the, the group, uh, as I said, 18 weeks, um, we have the opportunity to do individual counselling for men who, for whatever reason, can't attend the group or aren't suitable. Um, most people are suitable, but there are certainly some who, for example, if English is a second language uh, and it's not a strong language, then we can work with an interpreter one-on-one -on -one with them. Um, if we have someone whose circumstances are rather different, so the shape of the, the, the way, the, the nature of, of, the, of the abuse uh, could be a very young person, could be someone with very high levels of anxiety, 
um, whatever it is, sometimes uh, uh, a gay man who isn't going to be comfortable in a group of uh, purely heterosexual and, and sometimes a bit homophobic men. Um, that's not always the case, but there's some of the examples where we might do individual counselling and then we've got people, FIFO workers and so on, who, who can't actually commit to doing that. So the individual work uh, is a bit of a feature and one of the things we've uh, discovered uh, over the years, um, apart from the guys that we do solely individual work with, we've found that for those who are doing the group, there is a real value in having the opportunity to do one-on-one -on -one work in conjunction, kind of in parallel with that. It gives us the opportunity to see things and get an insight into what's going on for this guy in the group and seeing his interactions with other men and his response to what we're doing in group alongside the responses of other men. Um, but then when we to, to see people one-on-one -on -one means we've got the opportunity to go into some very specific issues, very individual issues for, for that man and tailor the intervention more uh, to his intervention needs. Um, I think that's probably, in my experience, that that would be the most effective uh, format. Uh, group work by itself is fine for a lot of guys, but for some of the trickier ones or for the ones where there is a, a, a deeper need, um, a more high-level need for intervention, that combination works well. We, we do have a review session, uh, an individual review session that we do with everyone, um, but what I'm talking about is offering or responding to a request for in additional individual sessions alongside the group. Um, at the end of that whole process, we do an exit interview, and that is about putting together a safety and support plan, and it's a way of summarising everything that the man has learnt that's relevant to his situation, being really clear about why he came here, what it was he needed to change, what the people around him need from him, what are his triggers and the things that he finds difficult to handle, and how does he know when that stuff's going on, what can he do about it, what are the, what are the strategies to deal with the really difficult situations when the proverbial was hitting the fan, but also what are the sorts of things he can do in a uh, maintenance or prevention kind of way to prevent uh, problems arising or prevent himself getting to a state where he might make poor choices. Um, so that, and then there's some other stuff about um, uh, ongoing support post-group and post-involvement with us. So everyone leaves with that, and we are fortunate in that, uh, and I think it's probably in common with other services, but our funding targets are about the number of hours we spend rather than the number of people we pump through. And obviously there's a pressure, we've got a big waiting list, the pressure to get the people through, but it, we do place a high priority on the quality of the intervention, which means if necessary we do spend more time with people to actually have a meaningful safety and support plan or to have someone, um, by the time he gets into group, he really has some, some clear goals that are relevant and he has some internal motivation, even if it's only a small bit initially, it'll be expanded once we get into the group and there's more conversation. But um, we've got someone who's a customer to the process, at least at some level, rather than going to be fighting us all the way.
uh, and and being disruptive in the group and so on. So um, that's a bit of the shape. That's a bit of a long-winded story about the shape of the program uh, we do in Brisbane. Paul, that was a really uh, comprehensive overview of your day-to-day role. Thank you for that. Back to the actual thinking, I guess, more globally about the whole idea of perpetrator interventions. So do you think there's, there is more interest? And if so, why do you think there's more interest? Um, I think over time there is more interest. And I'm looking at things like, for example, the Safe and Together model, which in the child protection field um, certainly is placing the perpetrator of violence very firmly in view, looking at patterns of perpetration and, and, and the harm done and so on and being clear about being able to document that stuff. Um, within the DV sector, I think I don't think there's been a huge shift um, uh, in very recent times, but I do think there's been over time an increasing uh, recognition of the need for perpetrator intervention services to be more, for example, more closely integrated with systems, um, to be to have more of them for a start, and that you know, when there was an increase in funding for a number of uh, types of service uh, in the DV sector, the perpetrator interventions certainly got a substantial increase since about five years ago. Um, and the ANROS research, I mean, one of the things that the government has said now for a number of years in response to the question of why don't we invest more in interventions with those who are using violence, actually stop violence at the sources, so they all say we don't have enough research yet or the research isn't clear enough or the, you know, the research isn't... Uh, it, it, it's It's... Not sufficient that they want to put their money behind it. Now, whether that's the case or not, that's certainly the perception. And um, there is a great difficulty in doing research really well in this field. And I don't need to say more about that because plenty of other people have spoken about it. Um, and so that means that really good quality evaluations are a bit few and far between. Um, it's not just about program evaluations, there's, there's a number of areas to be researched. So I'm really pleased that Van Rose actually recognised the need for that as a, as a specific stream and uh, did fund some of that work in the last uh, in the last uh, years. Um, I guess the media also <clears throat> has a bit of a role here, um, sometimes an unhelpful one, because monstering is very much part of what the media like to do as part of their sensationalist processes. But there has been some reasonable reporting about um, the road intervention programs as well. Um, what I've found um, in terms of uh, the level of interest in it, people usually are very, people who haven't had direct experience of it are usually really keen to hear more, perhaps because it's a bit mysterious perhaps because the people who are using violence in themselves are, uh, by definition, a bit intimidating, approaching them is a bit intimidating, and I thought, how can you work with some of these people? How can you work with a monster? 
Um, so, uh, whenever we've had, you know, if, I, if I move to the experience in our uh, service in Brisbane, whenever we have people sitting in who haven't uh, had any involvement with perpetrator interventions before, they're usually really surprised. They're really interested, but they're also really surprised. And one of the reasons they're often surprised is the level of engagement and the level of honesty or you know, openness to disclose the sorts of things that, that are disclosed in that group. Um, but there's also an interest in actually understanding where, where these guys come from, how do they work, what motivates them. Um, and the, the kind of one-dimensional or two-dimensional type or cut-out kind of monster picture that the media portrays doesn't most of the time help us understand what that's about. And so there are lots of misconceptions, lots of stereotypes about that. And to actually see real men in the room responding in real ways to, to the kind of issues we talk about in those groups is a bit of an eye-opener. One, because in some ways they're actually very normal, they're not monsterish at all. I mean, there are a few who, a small number, who have perpetrated some really horrendous violence. Um, but that's not certainly the bulk of the people we're working uh, and so look that's a long like another long answer to a short question um, I think there's a, a few reasons why there's interest um, I think what's really going to make the difference for us is when the government has enough confidence to say not only are we interested but we we can see that there is enough of a research base there to put our faith in uh, increasing the scale of those services. And I know that the whole sector needs more money across the board, um, but um, it's a problem when we have significant waiting lists in, in South East Queensland, so people are waiting six months or more. There's a real value in being able to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak, and, and you can't do that when you've got a six-month waiting list. So... Maybe it's time then to talk about some of the key challenges and perhaps then it would be good to look at what's working well. So you've alluded to waiting lists and because you've been working in the area for some time and you have given us a very um, fulsome picture of, of what your role entails, what do you see as some of the key challenges at the moment, Paul? Um, look at it on a few different levels. Um, for the sector, I put my speak hat on, um, there's an across-the-board challenge in getting suitably qualified uh, and qualified men for the, for the uh, male facilitator roles, that recruitment issue, and particularly in the regions. It's been that way for years, but it certainly isn't improving. Um, it's really hard to do the work in the role, thing. So that's that's a fundamental one. Um, there is still a bit of an issue even in the metropolitan areas in that respect. So there's there's something about attracting men, and it's not just anyone. Uh, I mean, you can attract men, but you need men with not only the right, uh, sufficient skill space, but with the right value set and the right kind of personal understanding. I think this is one area where you really can't 
just do it as a profession without any personal engagement. We're all human beings in relationship. And for those of us who are men doing this work, we are men in relationship with women in our lives. If we haven't sorted that stuff um, you know, reasonably well, none of us are perfect, but if we haven't sorted it reasonably well, how the hell are we going to be able to work with men who've got really substantial challenges in this area? So not everyone's done that work. Um, not everyone is comfortable in, in looking at it from a feminist perspective. Um, and understanding the role that gender plays in that whole thing. You know, that's, um, that's, that's not something that, that men are always comfortable with. So anyway, so that's, that's one major one, a little quick issue. Um, I think there's always a challenge. This is kind of a perennial challenge of work. When you get people coming and going, uh, in and out of the sector, upskilling people is, uh, is an issue, is a challenge. Um, it's part of the reason Speak does what it does is to, to try and support people to, to get up to speed as quickly as possible, training opportunities and whatever. Um, it's an area where your, your skill, your expertise in work really matters in terms of the outcomes. There is a huge difference between the kind of work that a, an experienced and skilled facilitator can do and what a newbie can do. And that's part of the reason why there are the substantial program requirements in our, in our funding uh, investment specs. Um, but that issue of, you know, all of us have got to start somewhere. How do we, how do, we do that and how, how can we be supported in a way, how can new people be supported in a way that they can develop that expertise quickly and continue to, you know, to work safely um, while they develop their, their capacity to be effective in what they're doing. Um, so that's one. I think uh, for individual practitioners, there is uh, a challenge of the volume of work in terms of the, the backroom stuff. So you do your work in front of a group um, or individually, but then all the, the paperwork side of it, the assessment, the, the risk assessments, the um, keeping across court documents, um, um, keeping contact with the, the women's advocate, um, doing the necessary reporting when things come up, that, that's, that can be quite a substantial uh, workload. And so I know for a lot of people, their roles are really, really full. Um, and for interventions to work well, we need that, that system interconnectedness to be working well, and that takes time and effort. So that I'm, I'm aware that that's a challenge, just, just the volume of it, yeah. being able to do it. You know, really that's quite a list of challenges, Paul. And now for the what's working well. Um, what do I think is working well? Um, I think that we have uh, some sense of, you know, the speaker's been around a while. I think the speaker's contributed to us having a bit of a sense of an identity as, as, as a sector, as a part of it, a unique part of the sector. Um, um, 
Well, we've certainly had some success at being able to, to bring in um, relevant training over the years and, and the opportunity to upskill people. And um, we're working with WorkUp at the moment to put some things in place for uh, early next year to continue that. Um, we have uh, our annual forum, which hasn't been annual for the last couple of years for COVID and a couple of other reasons, but uh, um, ran that again a couple of weeks ago and um, really positive feedback. And one of the things that people always uh, comment on is the value of being able to interact with others who are doing the same work. Um, and to talk about the practice issues, but the, the broader issues of the systems we're working in as well. Um, so, yeah, it's big. Its existence and the fact that it keeps people connected, I think, is, is working well, uh, you know, to, to a degree. I'm a bit passionate, so yeah, I think we'll see them improving. Um, other things that are working well, I think there is a, and this is a work in progress, but there is a pretty universal understanding now of the importance of being connected with systems. And that wasn't, you know, if we go back 10 years ago, I don't think that was anywhere near as strong with the further intervention programs. Um, so I think that's certainly been an improvement. There's no, there's no question for anyone in, in the field that that aspect of it is important and uh, given attention. Paul, you've already alluded to the future a little in some of your answers, but finally, since the bulb's all about shining light, can you share your thoughts on what you see ahead in terms of this, this area of working with men? Mm. I think there, there's a few areas. Um, one of them that we're aware of is that there are a small number of men that do a large proportion of the harm. And a lot of those guys need much more intensive case management than we're able to give them at the moment. So I think that one's a really clear one that we actually need to have, and I don't think I'm the only one who's identified this. Um, I think it's been spoken about in a few places. We, we need more intensive case management services alongside the, the, the program, you know, um, behaviour change or attitudinal change programs. Um, that's one area. I think within the programs themselves, we need to continue to improve what we do. But I think really importantly, we need to continue having dialogue. You know, there's a bit of diversity in our sector in terms of approaches, and I think that's a good thing. Um, what I'd really like to see is more opportunity for dialogue between differing perspectives to really understand where we're coming from and what are the, what are the really... Um, the really important kind of key element that in our respective approaches we really want to value and highlight and don't, don't want to let go of the things that we think are really crucial. What I've discovered is there is quite a bit of diversity um, 
amongst the men that we work with. Um, and diversity at all kinds of levels. Actually being able to work effectively with all of them, given that we usually only run one, one, you know, one group, one, you know, one type of group. We don't, we don't stream people into different you know, kinds of programs. Um, there's some real challenges in being able to make sure we're effective with, with everyone, and particularly when we're talking about some of the the, the, the guys with a higher intervention need, um, the guys that we would say, you know, at the end of a 16 or 18 week program, well, I think we're just starting to, to see a few changes happening here and he's about to finish. Um, um, and that's, I wouldn't call that the majority, but there's certainly a few. Uh, and we need some capacity to have more intensive interventions with people, to have longer interventions with people but we don't have the resourcing or, and there's no need to do it with everyone. So how we actually do some of that tailoring, I think is something that, that also needs to be done. I mean, in the future, if we're gonna move forward, I think that's a question that has to be answered. Paul, that brings us to the end of this podcast. So thank you so much for joining us on The Bulb. It's been very interesting to hear about the diversity of your roles, the diverse approaches that you're taking with the diversity of men that, with whom you're working. So thank you so much for joining us on The Bulb today. Thank you, Colleen. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au. For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1-800-737-732 through 1-800-RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.